Welcome to What She Said. My name is Candace Sampson, and when I first took over What She Said in January 2020, I jokingly asked in the intro, what could possibly go wrong? And then 2020 said, let me show you. My life has been a country song ever since, but then again, so is everyone else's right now. Thankfully, through this podcast, I get to meet the most amazing women in Canada and around the globe and share their stories with you. What She Said is here to talk about anything and everything under the sun as interpreted by and through the perspective of women. Because honestly, we've heard what he said for long enough. If you like what you hear, be sure to hit subscribe and share this podcast with a friend. Today's show is coming right up. As I record this, the El Dorado fire in California has burned over 14,000 acres and is only 39% contained, which means there is certainly more to come. Aside from the sheer horror Californians are facing right now, it's even more insane to think that this particular fire was started by a gender reveal party. Crazier still, it's not even the first time. You can't help but shake your head and ask, why are we so obsessed with gender? Maybe it's time to examine not just the damage we're doing to our planet, but to our children as well by fixating on it. When my next guest's daughter came home and declared herself a tomboy, she didn't just question what that word meant, but felt compelled to find out where it came from and how it's evolved over the years. And that deep dive into just one word has led to her book, Tomboy, that explores the gender spectrum and offers us all incredible insight into how we can do better for our children. Meet Lisa Sellen Davis. Hey, Lisa, welcome to the show. It's good to have you back. Uh, we, I, we did a radio interview a couple of weeks ago, so I'm glad you're back to talk about Tomboy. Thank you so much for having me. So let's talk a little bit about what uh, prompted you to start writing about Tomboy. So when my daughter was in preschool, I first started noticing that most of the little girls were kind of going one way and she was going another. That was the beginning of my noticing and writing about that a little bit and my mixed feelings about it, kind of pride as a feminist, but also confusion. And a few years later, um, when she was in first grade, my daughter came home and said, someone told me I'm a tomboy. And that's a girl who likes short hair and, and likes sports, which described her. And clearly someone had, um, a kid had asked his or her parent to explain why there was this girl who didn't look like any of the girls and in fact looked like a boy. And the parent had pulled that word from their own lexicon. We don't know who it was. Um, but it, that's when I realized, oh, that word was really common in my childhood. That kind of person was really common in, on the playground and in the media in my childhood and had largely disappeared. And then a couple of years later, I wrote again about the experience my child was having, which was that many, many kind, loving, well-meaning adults who knew her well were having a hard time accepting that she could identify as a girl. And so I wrote about this experience of wanting to really be supportive of and facilitate trans kids, but not assume something about a person's identity because they don't 
hue to gender norms and stereotypes. You know, I have to tell you, I laughed. It's on page six of the book. And I laughed because you said our lovely pediatric nurse practitioner almost always asked if she wanted a new pronoun. And that made me cringe and laugh at the same time, you know, because it shows how far we've come in the acceptance of trans kids and accepting pronouns, but also the struggle with your, she's, she's just a kid. She's just a girl, right? Why, why are, you know, so I could see when you, the struggle when you're asking that. Yeah, you know? this, this tension between really wanting to be inclusive and yet also under, assuming that kids have this adult's understanding of gender and then, and then wanting to uh, affirm gender identity, but also when you're assuming that a kid's gender identity is rooted in stereotypes, like what does that say about us? And I didn't have the answers to any of those questions, you know, but I found, of course, I, I experienced even asking them, even talking about it, so much backlash that I, that I cowered for a while, then I decided to read through it and say, okay, what are my, what are the people who say I'm misunderstanding, writing about this wrong? Um, what, what are they saying to me? What have I missed? And indeed, I, I mean, a, a whole language of gender had evolved without me knowing very much about it. So I decided to reach out to some of the people who had written um, against my own pieces who had, who had written think pieces saying my, my think piece was wrong to just really try to understand their points of view. And all, so all those things together added up to, oh, there's a book's worth of ideas to explore. And, and, in, and indeed, there was more than I ever could have imagined to wade through. Yeah, you know, and you say that uh, uh, early in the book, you say that uh, the discussion of gender is one of the hardest subjects there is to talk about. And as I was reading through this book, I was getting that sense. There's so many different ways to talk about this. And so this book is about, obviously, the term tomboy, but you touch on how this affects girls, boys, trans kids, how this sort of plays across um, every um dimension of childhood and gender and kids. And, and so is there a hard and fast definition for, tom, for, for a tomboy? Well, what I believe is that there are no hard and fast definitions for any words to do with gender and that all of these words from trans to tomboy to boy and girl mean different things to different people. And all different people have different stakes in these definitions, which has been a big, uh, the biggest eye opener for me is one of the reasons it's so hard to talk about is that people are often talking about different things and they don't even know. So the, so the shorthand for tomboy is a girl who looks or acts like a boy. But that definition is dependent on there being some kind of static idea of acting or looking like a boy. And one of the things we know, especially from looking back at the trajectory of tomboys, which was a, a popular conception of a girl in the 19th century too, is that what it means to act or look like a boy changes many times throughout history. So in the 19th century, whistling was something only a boy would do or climbing a tree was something only a boy would do. Meanwhile, all boys and girls, um, especially before they went to school around age six, you know, they all wore dresses. They all had long hair. So there are all of these different ways that 
our idea of what's normal for a boy and normal for a girl and the idea that those are two different buckets completely are, are evolving and changing ideas. And I'm just not sure that people today, when they think about like a boy or like a girl, are aware of how much that's changed and, and also how much that's narrowed. Our idea of what a girl is like now and what a boy is like, you know, my argument is that it's actually really gotten whittled down to just a few behaviors. And if you don't look or act that way, then quite, adults are really confused, but they don't understand where their confusion came from. Well, you know, I, so I was reading because I really loved uh, reading, you know, sort of the historical uh, aspect of this word and where it came from. And then you got to um, the facts of life and Joe and Blair. Uh-huh. And, you know, I'm Gen X. That was a big, big yeah. period of my life. Uh, Christy McNichol. Yeah. So do you think that was sort of the golden era of, of tomboys? You know, because there, it seemed to be free of any sexualization or expectation. It seemed, I, I hate to say the word, but more innocent, maybe. Well, I, I think that was, I call that the last tomboy heyday. And I do think that was the last time those characters were common in the media. And I think they just come out of the popular wave of feminism. And feminism was very rooted in letting girls have access to what was on the blue side of the pink-blue divide. You know, Title IX in America let, let girls have equal educational opportunities, including in sports. You know, that's only, that's only a few decades old. And all of the other things that came via the women's movement, like changing laws so that women can't be raped by their husband or so they can have a credit card in their own name or all of these things that, that women were not allowed to, not expected to do, or, or people thought they were inferior and couldn't do. And that trickled down into how a lot of women raised girls, and then it trickled down into media representations of girls. And so those girls were often the heroines of whatever film or TV show they were in. They were, um, they were the ones most girls looked up to, even if, like me, they weren't at all tomboyish. I mean, I say in the book, I've only met one person my whole life who liked Blair better than Joe, and I can't even wrap my mind around that because Joe could fix a, her own motorcycle, you know, and I don't know what Blair could do. She could do her hair really well. She was just an infinitely more likable character. Uh, even though she was foul-mouthed and kind of nasty and mean. I mean, <laughs> yeah, but she was just, there was always that heart of gold, you know, under that tough yeah. exterior. Uh, so, you know, you just knew she was a good person. And um, I think that's why people were drawn to her. Uh, you know, and Krista McNichol was, again, another one that I just absolutely loved during that era. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, video killed the radio star. So did uh, girl power kill tomboys? You know, that's, that's a thesis. I mean, and, but the, it's really what girl power came out of, which I think is the kind of feminist backlash of the late 1980s. And you see as, which, which always happens, any wave of feminism is met with trying to push women back into the boxes. So the, the feminist 1970s are met with um, kind of, well, women are never going to go all the way back. They've made all of these gains, but 
the way they made these gains is by accessing what's marked as masculine. So raising this generation of, of girls to, um, to think they can do whatever boys can do. They can play baseball and they can wear pants and they had all these, you know, unisex clothes, which were actually just boys clothes. And a lot of those girls grew up and actually became women who participated in the opposite, the hypergendering of childhood. So in the, in the late eighties, you have all of these cultural forces, um, that contribute to going from let's dress girls like boys and have all these unisex clothes to let's divide everything into pink and blue, everything you can possibly think of. And you get the rise of prenatal sex testing and you get um, the first boys and girls diapers. So you get the commodification of gender and childhood for the first time in a way that proves wildly effective. And then all these marketers and manufacturers learn if you make two versions, boy and girl, and they can't be shared, you can sell twice as many. It's really, it really works. My daughters were born in the early 2000s. And, you know, I remember at the time, you know, I mean, I wasn't obviously thinking about this subject at the time, but, you know, everything was pink and purple. And I went out and, you know, feminized their nurseries. And, you know, it was just, it was crazy. It was totally girl stuff. Uh, princess, princess, princess. Then came the rejection yeah. of uh, the princess stuff. And that was, you know, um, pretty intense, actually. It was almost angry when that came on for them. And you talk about that a little bit in the book about the PFD uh, stage of raising a girl. And I thought that was really interesting, sort of the backlash when it goes back the other way. So what did you find when you looked at that? That really surprised me too. And I think that research affected me more than almost anything else. So what um, social psychologists found was that something like 74% of American girls go through this, um, what they call the PFD, pink frilly dress stage. And they, they're working, the way it works with cognitive development and gender is that, you know, by three, they've, they understand the stereotypes and sort of rules of their sex group and, that, and which one they belong in. And they work really hard to perfect it. And so they have learned that the girliest thing in the world is a pink frilly dress. And so if you want to like prove that you're a girl because they think your membership is not based on your body, but on the external, then they get really into it and they get very insistent about it. And then somewhere between six and eight, a lot of girls go through this phase where they start saying, I hate pink and I hate princesses and I don't want to wear dresses anymore. And parents think, oh, that's so great. You know, phew, the princess phase is over. But when the psychologists looked at boys, they found that didn't happen for them. They didn't turn six, seven, eight and say like, you know what, I'm going to wear dresses because my membership in this group is not dependent on what I wear. Because actually for boys, their membership on the group is much more constricted. Not only is it about their body, but it is about them performing in this like narrow confine of how you can look, how you can dress, who you can play with. So boys didn't go through this phase and say, yeah, I'm going to, I love dolls actually. And, um, and I'm going to wear a a pink tiara for the rest of the year. And when they looked at why, what they realized was that in addition to understanding this idea of gender constancy, which is my membership in the group is based on my body, not on the, on what I wear, 
that they also understood gender hierarchy. And they understood that anything that's marked as feminine, regardless of whether it has to do with biology or not, which obviously pink and dresses don't, um, that anything marked feminine is seen as less than masculine. And so what girls and boys are actually doing is distancing themselves even more from anything marked as feminine as a way of saying, you know, I know that's worse. And girls are saying, I'm like a boy. And boys are saying, yeah, I'm the best. I'm really like a boy. <laughs> and they're both rejecting um, anything to do with girls and girliness. And that was shocking to me that that was internalized sexism and not liberation, the opposite of what we, many of us think. It was sort of coming to them naturally, really. It was being absorbed, it. yeah, through the messages of the culture. And it was being, what was being absor absorbed was that if you mark something as girly, it's automatically bad. Yeah, that's interesting. You know, my daughters again, so now, you know, we went through that period of rejecting anything pink, anything frilly and girly, blah, blah, blah. Now we're, you know, they're the other side of the spectrum, you know, late teens, and now they're starting back to embracing pink and, uh, you know, showing their bodies and being proud of it and all of that. So, I, you know, I don't think I really ever had that tomboy stage with my girls. Um, but I would like to talk about the pink blue um, uh, thing in your book, the dichotomy there between the two colors, because the, you said pink is, was a boy's color uh, yeah. at the beginning. And so when, what era was that sort of considered a boy's color? So pink was not a very easy color to produce. It had to do with dye technology. And by the end of the 19th century, it was getting a little easier. Um, but it wasn't a common color just because it was difficult. I mean, it was occasionally you would see clothes make, made with pink. And most people were still making their own clothes until the Industrial Revolution, really. So, um, so at the turn of the, of the 20th century, um, there was starting to be more pink, and there was also starting to be more of a differentiation between boys' and girls' clothes. By, by around 1920, that's when we really started to dress boys' and girls' differently. And there was debate about whether or not, what colors went with which sex. So pink was associated with red, and red was thought of as a vibrant, you know, masculine color. Whereas blue, especially light blue or baby blue, associated with the Virgin Mary, a soft, you know, feminine color. And this gets debated in different department stores and kind of retailer publications. And one theory is that what sealed the deal on it was in the 1950s, um, President Eisenhower's wife, Mamie, was a, a crazy pink fanatic, and she had a gown with thousands of pink gems and she painted every room in her house pink and um, so there's a shade of pink known as Mamie Pink and these kind of 1950s pink bathrooms that are known as Mamie Pink bathrooms which I'm quite fond of and um, and so that really started to make pink into associated with femininity and then when we have the 50s and we have a, a growing consumer culture again that gets interwoven in it as a way to like you know it's helpful to sell things when you've associated them with a specific group well the, the consumerism of this is really you know when i think about it is huge uh this pink and blue you know i think about everything and it, uh, literally there's nothing you can't buy that's not been pinked, right? Pink it and shrink it, as they say. There's yeah. just nothing out there. Um, 
that you can't get in two versions, which seems crazy to me. Um, so are you seeing a, did, you know, when you were doing this, are you, do you, are you seeing a backlash now from the parents who are now raising their children? Uh, you know, the millennials and the, and, and the young Gen Zers, are they starting to push back on that and look for these gender neutral products? Oh, they're not even looking at products. I mean, some of them are, are not gendering their children, right? I mean, the backlash is in trying to destroy the sex gender system altogether because I'm not sure they realize how, how restrictive and constrictive it's gotten. I don't, I'm not sure how many people understand the story of the gendering of childhood. I definitely did not until I did research for this book. I'm not sure how much they understand um, how our identities are affected by culture and how crazy strangled our culture is by gender and childhood and consumerism being all mixed together. But I do see all kinds of resistance from ranging from groups. There's a, a British group called Let Toys Be Toys that is, that is fighting to take gender labels off toys. And there are lots of people trying to sell gender-neutral clothes or to sell even better, you know, pink clothes for boys and to, to just not participate in this system. Um, and, then, and then there are people who are saying, I'm, I'm going to put an X on my child's birth certificate and not tell anyone their, their actual, you know, biological sex because we can't separate sex from gender and we know that people treat babies differently, newborns differently, based on their, the sex they assume that they are. So that I think the backlash is, in, is, is happening in all kinds of places, but I, I guess I feel it would be more useful if people understood this cultural moment that we're in and, and all of the forces that pushed us into these tiny gender boxes. I think it'll be easier for us to understand um, how, how much it's constructed, our idea of, of normalcy, how much of it is just uh, about capitalism, and that we can really opt out of it without it seeming like, uh, without it being a, a super radical act that feels like only those people over, over there would do this. You know, I, I feel like if you understood where your ideas came from, because I sure didn't, you know, it would just liberate you from feeling like you had to play by those rules. It was interesting. I think, you know, I, I, I don't know how old you are. I'm 50, so I'm completely Gen X. And reading this was like reading a little bit of my own history because I want to go back to what you said. You touched on toys there quick, briefly, and, you know, let toys be toys. And I remember when Lego was just Lego. Yeah. And it's really interesting to me now because everything is, it's girl Lego or boy Lego. And right. that's, that seems, but could they, I wonder if Lego would be able to, as my mother say, my mother says, unring the bell, would they be able to pull all of their pink off the market and have people just accept that? Well, that's um, not exactly what I advocate is we've already gone through the period where we tell people they should reject pink. And obviously that's what girls learn to do. And I don't believe that we need any different products or any new products at all. I think all we need to do is make every existing product open and available to every child, which is a difficult prospect because it means that parents of boys 
have to buy those things for their boys, encourage their boys to use it. It means the culture has to have media representations of boys in, you know, pink dresses and playing with dolls. And I don't have, for now, I don't have boys. <laughs> I don't know how my children will identify later, but I, I haven't experienced that pressure. And I can understand how hard it is to go against culture, except that I guess my family lives that every day on, on some level. Um, but it really is not about new stuff. It's really about just not marking stuff as for boy or girl. So it's great to have, let's have pink Legos. I love pink. Let's have purple. Love it. But let's not only show pictures of girls playing with pink and purple. And more importantly, the Lego Friends series that are for girls, it's just a prime, a prime example. There's nothing wrong with Lego Friends. Um, it's just that they're basically dolls and dollhouses. They, they don't build the same skill sets as the Lego bricks that are designed to help you with spatial relations and construction skills and make you into the well-paid engineer that you should be. And so the, the Lego Friends may help with nurturing and communications and all kinds of really important skills. But the idea that, that children should develop one skill set without the other is, it's not going to serve them well in, in life. It's not, if you, to be independent without being empathetic, you know, to be dominant um, without being like, you know, gentle or other centered in some way, it's just, it's, it's, it's really best to develop both sets of skills and Lego is just a good example of they divided the toys by gender, so they, they, they're promoting those skill sets as being only available to one group. All they really need to do is put some boys on the Lego Friends packages and put some girls on the regular Lego, you know, construction set packages. It's, it seems so hard for people to change the culture, but I just don't think it is. It's changed so many times. Why can't we change it again? That's exactly it. So you were surprised by PFD, uh, you know, what you found with that. Was there anything else that really sort of shocked you as you were researching this book? Yeah, I think I did a deep dive into the history of gender identity disorder. And one of the things I found was that it was used on a lot of kids. Um, when, when I say used on Many children were diagnosed with gender identity disorder even when their identity was not part of what they were doing or why their parents brought them into a clinic. So there were kids who were kind of roped into to a, a pathologizing because they weren't behaving the way their parents or other adults thought they should. So masculine little girls who were playing rough and tumble were sometimes brought into gender clinics because they weren't behaving like proper little girls. And then they didn't have gender dysphoria. They weren't upset. They just weren't behaving. And they were given, you know, conversion therapy to try to make them into proper ladies. And the same with feminine boys who were often brought in with, what's the matter with my kid? You know, and who were often, they, and, and, and I'm not talking about kids who we would think of as trans today. I'm not talking about kids who were saying, I am a girl. I'm talking about kids who were just doing quote unquote girl things or not having stereotypical male interests. And so this 
diagnosis that I, I genuinely think most of the psychologists and psychiatrists who came up with this, most of them, not all of them, were trying to help kids. But they were trying to help kids by making them conform to stereotypes without asking where the stereotypes came from. And some of them were um, probably gay men who had really internalized homophobia for themselves and were really trying to prevent kids from being gay. And some of them were also trying to prevent kids from being trans because they felt like, you know, in their defense, I guess, that they felt like it was such a hard life that they should try to get their gender identity to align with their sex. But all of that early work kind of had its, couldn't be separated from the stereotypes that all of these psychologists were basing their diagnosis in. And if you, um, even if you look at today at some of the criteria for gender dysphoria, there's, there's still a lot of stuff about, you know, girls who don't want to wear dresses or don't want to wear stereotypically feminine clothing and boys. And that's still, that's still in there in a way that I can understand, um, but I still wonder about. And I, and I really think the pathologizing of gender nonconformity, and by that I mean uh, of not conforming to gender stereotypes and gender norms, is problematic. And we can leave more room for kids to just be exploring both sides of the pink-blue divide because the pink-blue divide is really generally unhealthy. You know, and I know this book is about the, the history of tomboys and, and girls, but you really, like I said, you really touched on this. It was really about boys and girls and gender. So, you know, now that you've looked back at the history of, of the word tomboy and sort of the pink blue divide and so on and so forth, when you look ahead, do you have a fear for where this is going? And do you have a hope for where this is going? Well, I think, they're, I think those are all wrapped up together. You know, my hope is that people really, really learn to examine where their ideas of normal come from and to make a wider range of normal and to feel liberated to opt out of the pink-blue divide in terms of the stuff of childhood and the kids' material and psychic worlds, you know, to... But I think in order to do that, they have to understand it. And so they have to, they have to learn what's in this book about what happened. Um, my greatest fear is that people won't be able to learn because the backlash that comes with question, questioning anything to do with current language and ideology around gender is so fierce that it is very hard to, it is very hard to learn. It's very hard to ask questions because if you ask the wrong question, you get pummeled. And it's, it's very everything hard for, right now, though. It's it's everything. The left, it's the left and the right, and yeah. gender, uh, you know, uh, conformity on one side and not on the other, and and all of these like it, it's so tribal that yeah. it feels like we can't have these normal, calm. You know, I was, you know, I'm going to go back way back to the beginning of this podcast. You mentioned you went out and talked to, you talked to people who disagreed with you, with your yeah. think pieces. How often yeah. do people do that anymore? 
I mean, I'm always struck. It doesn't happen to me that often, but occasionally I write something and then people write articles about why I'm wrong. And I always think, why didn't you call me up to discuss it? Why are you doing it that way? Do you want to change my mind or do you want to humiliate me? Do you want to have a growth experience? Like, do you want to try to make the world better? Do you want to try to create more understanding or do you just want to try to squash somebody who you disagree with? And I don't know, you know, I, the thing that I wrote in, in 2017 in the New York Times that ignited such a severe reaction on both sides, um, positively and negatively, I still stand by my original point. I feel like we've narrowed our, our idea of what a girl is like so much that we can't, it's very hard for people to accept this kind of girl. So I feel like I wrote this book to say, this kind, this is all normal. It's normal to be trans. It's normal to be a tomboy. It's normal to be girly. There are all of these different ways to be in the world, but I wouldn't, I think it, I think the experience of reaching out to people like that was really powerful for me because I know I'm in a position of privilege in a variety of ways. And I tried to keep their voices in my head as I wrote to be careful and consider it and respect their point of view, even though I didn't necessarily agree with it. Okay. Excellent. Well, this is, it was a, it's a great read. It's a great book. So obviously, um, you know, I'm based in Canada, but people will listen around the world. So where are the best places for them to find this book? Oh, the, the most wonderful thing would be for you to request it from your local bookstore and ask them to carry it. That would be so great. Okay. Excellent. That's what we're going to go with. Thank you so much for joining me today, Lisa. Thank you so much for having me. This is Charles Adler. After a few years of working on radio and television, The Charles Adler Show has evolved to a natural place in 2023. YouTube, podcast, and open RSS. You'll hear the show as it always has been delivered, concise, with context, clarity, and empathy. And as a bonus, the guests will be natural-born storytellers who won't fear telling stories that are personal and emotional. They won't fear uncomfortable questions. Most important, they won't fear me. Follow me on Twitter at Charles Adler and subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Andrea Askowitz. And I'm Allison Langer. And we are the hosts of Writing Class Radio, a podcast, but we are so much more. We have writing classes. So if you are looking for live online classes where you can join a community, write to a prompt, get feedback, and get better, check out all our classes at writingclassradio.com. And listen to our podcast wherever you get your podcasts and at writingclassradio.com. Another Sound Off Media Company podcast.